consider for a moment process and product in the arts. Occasionally we'll read an esoteric bit of writing espousing the idea that the real joy in creating art is in the process. Maybe, but serious and driven artists eventually hope to create a work of art that they can share, display, and sell. A product that helps them make it in the business. Welcome to episode 14 in the second series of Jazz Backstory. This is Monk Rowe, director of the Phileas Jazz Archive, and this episode deals with the goal of every musician that I've ever known, including myself. The dream of being in a studio, playing into a mic, and hearing the final product on a recording. Depending on the era, this could mean being on wax, vinyl, reel-to-reel, A-track and cassette tape, CDs, digital sound files, or just floating in the cloud. In one sense, the road travails described in our previous two episodes were part of dues-paying, leading to the reward of a record. As we heard in Episodes 1 and 2, records provided not only inspiration, but served as a teaching tool for numerous jazz artists. Pianist Jonah Ann Burkeen and Toshiko Akiyoshi remind us of the role of recordings in the formative years of aspiring musicians. From our 2001 interview with Joanne Burkeen, I read an interesting little tidbit as someone said that one of your early influences was Frankie Caro. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That was how I learned how to play. Uh-huh. I liked his solos. I liked his piano playing. And there was one album, I think it was called Frankie Carl and His Girlfriends. And so it was like Diane and Charmaine and Louise. And uh, I learned these solos note for note when I was 11. Wow. I played them, actually. I, I began performing them. No kidding. The whole solo. Uh-huh. The whole thing. Exactly what you heard on the record, that's what I played. So after doing maybe six months of that, and maybe I did eight or ten of them, I knew how to play the piano. When you were playing them, um, trying to figure out how to say this, did you know what you were playing from a harmonic standpoint? I just heard. I still, that, that's how I go now. Okay. <laughs> it's what I do now. Uh, uh-huh. People so, are always saying, well, what's that? What's that? And I say, well, it's, it's here. Here it is. Oh, <laughs> this is what it is. Uh-huh. And uh, I still don't have a definite definition of everything. And on the other side of the globe, Toshiko Akiyoshi in post-World War II Japan. When did, the, did it first come up that, that you might actually come to the States to well, study? those days... The only, there's a couple way to learn new music and also the language to, uh, as I said, the record. I used to copy record one at a time and unfortunately later on uh, I was hired uh, in a band uh, which was playing officers club and the daytime is of course they're dead and no one there and they have one of those uh, record, you know, record player. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a, those days called V-Disc. V-discs, yes, yeah. it's kind of like 12 inches, I think. And I could play, and I could listen, and then I could copy that. doesn't matter whether it's a saxophone player solo or whatever. Uh-huh. I just copy everything. And those, that, that's the way you learn how idiosyncrasy of like a improvisation. 
uh, languages. Then later, when I uh, went to Tokyo, this was on Kyushu Island, and then start getting a jazz coffee shop where you can have a cup of coffee and myself, for example, <laughs> stay for about two, three hours and I try to learn some tunes because that was the only way. There was nothing, uh, you know, thousand uh, timpan ale music or something like that. There was nothing about the books or anything. No, no fake books. So, no, uh, nothing. Yeah. So yeah. You, you learn that way. The recording industry came to fruition in the early 1900s, the same era that jazz and blues coalesced into distinctive music styles. From 1910 to 1929, the Victor Victrola system competed with Edison Diamond Disc technology, both producing thick and weighty records, one song per side, spinning on a wind-up turntable, no electricity required. When we started our oral history project, there were still musicians alive that had participated in this early technology. 90-year-old trumpet player Doc Cheatham reminisced about his first recording opportunity during our 1995 interview. Can you tell us about your first recording date? With Mulroney? Yeah. Oh, yes. I was with <laughs> Albert Wynn's pre-old jazz band when we made that recording. I knew Mulroney because I played, I sat in the Bijou Theater uh, playing shows with the pit band. I wasn't getting paid. I did it because they let me do it. Oh. And I just did it, trying to learn, learn as much as I could. And uh, Mulroney, oh, she came to, she, you know, she was, a, she was a, the ugliest blues singer on earth. When she got old, but when she was young, she was pretty. You see her picture, she was a pretty nice looking girl. But she's so ugly. And that's what they called her, the ugliest blues singer. <laughs> and they billed her as that. Oh my God. What was it like, you know, for for our students who, who are used to uh, hearing what they do to make a record these days, you know, in the million dollar studios? What was it like at that time to make a record? Well, Did, well after the this place where we played recorded with Maureen was just a just a room. They didn't have any, any speakers. We had a big megaphone we put out in front of the band, but no speakers. And everything was done on wax. You know, we didn't have the, the oh. we didn't have all that stuff. <laughs> no fixing mistakes, no, right? No, no. <laughs> and my next my first Next recording I did in Spain, in Barcelona, with Sam Williams' band. Sam Williams, the band was so great that no other band in Europe could compare with it. Now, they were there in 1923. They went all through Russia, all down in wow. Argentina with, with that band. Not John, John the Bass said, but the first part of 28. And we just went over there and played all the big casinos and hotels because he had a very big name. And we recorded up in Barcelona. It was hot as it is now. And the wax kept melting. Oh. <laughs> and they tried to put ice cubes on the, on the wax. Oh. It melt. But it, the, they came out wonderful. 
I am struck by the progress of technology as I listen to myself in this session. Doc Cheatham spoke of melting wax issues, and I spoke about the then-current million-dollar recording studios, now commonly replaced by a computer in a musician's bedroom. Doc Cheatham idolized Louis Armstrong, whose 1920s recordings with King Oliver were recorded in such a manner. Bassist and author Bill Crow described their first recording session in his book, Jazz Anecdotes, and I quote, The King Oliver Creole Jazz Band was about to make music history, but when they grouped around the big horn, there were problems. The two trumpets drowned out the rest of the band. King Oliver and Louis Armstrong had to be moved back while Johnny Dodd's clarinet was pointed directly into the horn. Baby Dodd's bass drum made the stylus skip on the wax, and he was limited to a snare and wood blocks. When Oliver and Armstrong played in their normal side-by-side -side position, it became evident that Oliver could not be heard. Armstrong was moved even farther away from the band. Pianist Lil Armstrong said that he was 15 feet away for most of the whole session. End quote. We should consider it fortunate that this process, as primitive as it sounds, was able to capture the most significant musician in jazz history in his formative years. Fellow trumpeter Jack Palmer who roomed with Frank Sinatra during their time with the Harry James Orchestra, shares his memory of his first recording date and includes an interesting anecdote about the New York City Musicians Union. Well, let's see. Uh, I went into New York, so I had a... I transferred in, so you had to... Uh, when you transferred in, I'll make this real short. You're not allowed... You're not allowed to work a steady job for the first three months. Uh, otherwise, everybody would come to New York, you know yeah. what I mean? But they made it difficult. Uh, after three months, uh, then you could accept a steady job with permission. And after that three months was over, now came time to get your union card. You had to have $100 to, get to, to pay for the union card. So uh, then I became a, a member. Uh, it seemed like I, as soon as I got my card, uh, George Wetling, a drummer, he, he heard me somewhere, I forget, I can't think right where, but he says, come down to such and such a studio. I went there and it was Red Norville and Mildred Bailey. And I sat in, and and first thing, and I didn't know it was being recorded. We were making a record. It was the first record date I ever had. And I didn't know, how, I never was acquainted with that stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, I said, gee, I'm making a record. And I remember the tune, because I had 16 bar solo in the front, in a Harmon mute, called I Used to Be Colorblind. That was the name of it. And then, then we played Just You, Just Me, which was a standard. And uh, I had the opening 16, after the introduction, I had the opening 16 bars there and then eight bars in the last chorus in the middle, the release. And all of a sudden I'm playing, uh, I'm, I'm recording jazz, which I never really had, except on home, home stuff, home recording. What was the, the recording at that time probably consisted of one microphone or something? Yeah, I had, I had to leave my chair, because I played in a, in a Harmon mute uh -huh. with the stem pulled out, and I had to walk 
so they, he left me eight bars out of the brass section to give me time to walk to the microphone, you know what I mean? Yep. And uh, so I played into the mic, and then I had uh, to walk back. I had eight bars open to walk back and then take the mute out and join the section, you know? Yeah. The idea of walking back and forth in the middle of a studio recording is now rather laughable. Recording technology developed quickly, though. The new innovations allowed for more productive sessions with a better-sounding product, and the market for jazz and blues skyrocketed. John Best was a featured trumpet player in the Glenn Miller Orchestra and other prominent big bands. He describes a typical late 1930s recording session. When you'd go to do a recording session with Glenn or, or even Artie Shaw, how much time did you usually have in the studio to do well, a side? A, a normal or... session is three, was three hours. Mm -hmm. After that, it's overtime. Ten dollars an hour. And how many tunes would you usually get done in three hours? As many as they could. As many as they could. I think there was a, eventually a limit on that, but uh, I would spend the changes that made that. But you could do uh, like two or three million selling, selling records and get ten dollars. Your part. Oh, in, yeah, because you, you didn't get any no. uh, residual or any of that no. kind of thing. They do today, but it's a little late for me. <laughs> right. A three-hour studio booking was standard during this period, and many jazz records were completed in one or two of these brief sessions. From the other end of the spectrum, I was reminded of a fact from the world of rock and roll, quoted here from a particular band's website. Guns N' Roses' sixth studio album, Chinese Democracy, was released in 2008 after a decade of work at an estimated $14 million in production costs. End quote. Perhaps they should have played into a megaphone, direct to wax. Might have gone quicker. It's time for a few choice vocabulary terms pertinent to our subject. Picture an LP made of wax. A stylus imprinted the vibrations of the band into the wax, and a high-tech process moved the grooves onto a metal master disc. Wax became synonymous with recording. An excerpt from the August 1942 edition of Downbeat magazine reads, Ross Russell has been appointed West Coast Recording Supervisor for Ash Records. His first assignment is waxing ragtime numbers by pianist Johnny Whitwer, end quote. For financial reasons, the engineers and producers hope to wax a recording in as few takes as possible. A take was an attempt at playing the tune well enough to move on to the next cut. Each individual record needed two tunes, an A-side and one for the flip side. John Best had described the three-hour Glenn Miller session where they achieved as many one-take retorings as possible. He also hinted at the ongoing contentious relationship between bands and record companies, as he netted $10 for a session that might yield multiple hits. Lastly, the term record still functions as the description of an audio product even if it only exists in someone's cloud. I have yet to hear an enthusiastic musician proclaim, Yeah, 
My band is making an MP3. After all, a digital file doesn't have a flip side. Jazz recordings run the gamut from well-rehearsed bands blessed with many hours of studio time to impromptu sessions where the producer hopes to catch lightning in a bottle. James Moody was one of the most respected saxophonists in jazz and established his reputation in a serendipitous studio moment. Recording as a guest with a European combo, James requested the tune, I'm in the Mood for Love a song he normally played on tenor sax. His distinctive treatment, which only hints at the melody, spawned numerous critics to praise his inspiring harmonic inventiveness. During our 1998 interview, James described the situation that led to this now iconic recording, renamed Moody's Mood for Love, with vocalese lyrics by Eddie Jefferson. So up until that point, even even when you recorded Moody's Mood for Love, right. it was all coming all by from ear. here. Moody's Mood for Love, the same thing. What I did was I was playing tenor. So Lars Gullen, who was a very fantastic baritone yeah. jazz player in Sweden, good musicians in Sweden, boy, wonderful. Uh, he uh, uh, had this beat-up-looking silver alto sitting by him at the record date. I asked him, you mind if I looked at it? He said, no. In old days, it was different. You played other people's horns. You know, you would never do that now. Right. So anyway, uh, they said, you have one more cut to do. What would you like to do? I said, how about I'm in the mood for love? Okay. And it's okay. So Gus Castellius, this is the truth, the arranger, he went into the john and put, jotted down, the, you know, the harmony, and then came back out and put them up on the thing. We did it in one take. Now, here's why it sounded like it sounded. When they hit the chord, boom, I said, boom, boom, be, boom, be, be, boom, be, be, boom, be, be, boom, 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 be, boom, boom, You know, I'm trying to find the notes because it's alto now, not tenor. You know, and people said, oh, you must have been inspired. I said, yeah, I'm inspired to trying to find the notes. That's what I was inspired, you know. As critic and author Whitney Ballier wrote, jazz is a sound of surprise. James Moody may have been surprised to discover he was in a new key, but his ear and intuition saved him. A one-take wonder. There's an inside jazz musician's joke about being surprised that there are two seven o'clocks in one day. Jazz cats are night owls which makes the circumstances of this Joe Williams and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra recording session unique. Saxophonist Jerry Dodgen and Jerome Richardson, part of the orchestra, vividly recall the date and the surprise that it actually worked well. Yeah, but back to this, this was really uh, exceptional. Uh, I remember this so well because in order for to get the band and Joe together, the scheduling was, was ridiculous. Uh, we started at 8 in the morning on 
couple of the days, and one was at seven in the morning. Oh, Lord. Now, this is, this is okay for the band. That's unusual. No dates usually start at 10. So what's eight? Eight's okay, but seven, unheard of. But Joe Williams, during that week, was working at the half note that I went down to hear. That he, I mean, they finished at the half note at a quarter to four in the morning. Then he was singing every night till a quarter to four, and then he would make this start come in for the, one of these record dates at seven o'clock. You know, so he had there's no sleep for him. Yeah, I mean, it would have been, and he just did great. And if you hear this record, you have no idea that he he was up all night to do these. I mean, that's just unbelievable. That's just. I was gonna. I was gonna think if he had just gotten out of bed for that, you wouldn't be able to hear his voice because it's. It'd be so low. Yeah. So it, to take a nap would be ridiculous. That would. Yeah. So, but. You know, there's something about the, when everything's going right, and it's it's a, for, for a really good. And you just you just pull up everything you have to do it. You know, it just and it just happens. You know, it's sometimes when you're. You're. You're exa a little exhausted. You don't have time to get nervous or anything. Mm -hmm. You just you just save all the energy for what it's really meant for, and yeah. uh, it works that way sometimes. Very interesting. But you just try to do it on purpose and see what yeah. happens. <laughs> Tell me about this particular. You remember this particular recording with Joe Williams? <laughs> Jerry told you all about yeah, that. Yeah, but I want to hear. I want to hear how you weathered it. <laughs> we all weathered it about the same way. Yeah. <laughs> he said it was a very early... Well, we just got finished uh, working uh, the Vanguard. Uh -huh. We were at 2 o'clock in the morning, everybody's drinking till 4 or something, you know, half drunk. And, and uh, 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 Joe is evil because the record date is going to be at 8 o'clock in the morning. And everybody's evil. Oh, we didn't want to be there at all. And especially him. And because of it, I think because of it, and we were tired and everything, because of it, that record came out fantastic. We played and, and it was like we didn't care, you know, we just, and of course we cared, but uh, um, we were tired. And sometimes things happen like that. When you're so tired, you just, uh, you can't, you're not on edge, you're not worried about playing the wrong note, you're not, you know, you're just sitting there playing and maybe enjoying it even then, you know, and of course we, we generally enjoy our work anyway. Right. And uh, so it turned out to be a fantastic record, and that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I have mentioned the important role Joe Williams played in the Phileas Jazz Archive oral history program. Not only did he lend his name and reputation to the effort, he interviewed a number of jazz legends himself. If you're into classic vinyl, keep your eyes open for Joe Williams and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra on the Solid State label. You'll feel like you're sitting in the middle of the band. All bands, no matter the musical genre, have engaged in the pursuit of a record deal, often without really understanding what it meant. After all the demos had been sent out and the no-thank-you response letters read, vanity recording became an option. The band itself, or perhaps a well-to-do fan, foot the bill for the studio time, the manufacturing, and the song licensing. 
The boxes of 45s, LPs, or CDs then traveled with the group in hopes of selling their precious product on the gig. One member's basement was often a final destination of the bulk of the records. In the late 70s, I was a member of a funk band that followed this path. A 45 RPM record was produced. I was the main composer of the two songs. Many discs were given away, some were sold, and the few remaining found the aforementioned basement. Over 40 years later, I received an email inquiry about this recording from an independent label, a one-man operation in Germany, proving that there are uber fans for absolutely everything This fellow gathered music from the unsigned 1970s American funk bands, releasing their music on 45s, LPs, and CDs, marketing the product internationally. He asked for permission to license the two tunes and include them in his next compilation. After considering waiting for a better offer, I signed on the dotted line. Our late 70s band and my tunes are now resurrected And I suppose we can proclaim, we got a record deal. That's the biz. Bassist Christian McBride has become a respected performer, composer, producer, and spokesperson in today's jazz scene. As a young musician, he displayed a refreshing bit of wisdom and humility when offered his first recording opportunity. When you came, uh, you got a chance to do your own record. Mm-hmm. And you sit down and you say, now, this is important. What's going to go on this? Yeah. So you kind of balanced your own originals with, with some classic... Yeah. Standards. Well, you know, I purposely tried to wait as long as I possibly. I tried to pick the time where I said, okay, well, the time is right now. Because I actually had a chance to do my first record maybe six years ago when this quote-unquote Young Lions craze started to happen. Yeah. When Roy Hargrove mm-hmm. and Antonio Hart, all of us, <clears throat> pardon me, came on the scene together. And as you well know, record companies started making it a hot commodity. So they were just handing out record contracts just because guys were under 21. And I didn't want to be a part of that because I had already uh, had a chance to be around really serious musicians like Winton and Branford and Bobby Watson. And I see the the effort and the sweat and the grit that they put into making their music. And I just know going into the studio, making a quick record, a quick, sad record, <laughs> wouldn't yeah. be good for the legacy of the music. So I said, mm-hmm. well, I just want to be able to play with as many different people as I can and get more experience. So when it comes time for me to make my record, I'll have some, I'll, I'll know what I'm doing to some extent. I think my time spent on wax during this episode demands that we end with music created in that fashion. Here's a bit of an Edison Diamond Disc record, circa 1912. The performers are the Green Brothers Novelty Band. The tune, popular at the time, is a foxtrot entitled Whispering. A bit of deep trivia, 
Whispering was transformed 35 years later by Dizzy Gillespie into a new tune for the Beboppers, Groovin' High. Here we go, played on my Edison Diamond Disc Player. So this is a delicate operation. Uh, first, we've got a cranker. Start the turntable. Drop the diamond disc. Oh, yeah, see you on the flip side. Uh -huh. 